I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. One reason immunotherapies can fail in cancer is that the tumor microenvironment can suppress activation of the immune system. Surface oncology is using multiple platform technologies to discover new antibody therapies that activate both the innate and adaptive immune systems to improve how people with cancer respond to these medicines. We spoke to Rob Ross, CEO of Surface Oncology, about the tumor microenvironment, the approach Surface is taking to activate both the adaptive and innate immune systems, and its lead therapeutic candidates in development. Rob, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Danny, it's great to be able to spend the time with you. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about the tumor microenvironment cancer immunotherapies, and surface oncology's efforts to develop next-generation immunotherapies that engage both the innate and adaptive immune systems. Let's start with immunotherapies as they stand today. How effective and how durable are they? Yeah, so Danny, I don't think one can overstate the importance of what is basically an immunotherapy revolution in oncology over the past um, 15 to 20 years. Now, it is definitely true that in the, uh, in the uh, late, latter half of the 20th century, in the 1970s and 1980s, people were dabbling with ways of activating the immune system as a way to fight cancer. But these approaches were occasionally successful, but for the most part, reasonably toxic. That all changed with the advent of the first generation IO um, therapies. These are primarily antibody-based therapies um, that were blocking the interaction between several key components of the, um, uh, of the adaptive immune system as a way to activate T cells. Um, particularly one particular set of therapies that was targeting the PD-1, PD-L1 axis um, being developed by a number of companies, but initially by um, the groundbreaking work done by um, Merck and BMS. Um, and I believe now that the um, it's certainly the uh, most used set of drugs, and I believe Keytruda's anti-PD-1 is the most used single oncology drug um, uh, across all classes of drugs. Um, these drugs um, are very efficacious in some tumor types, particularly tumor types um, that have a, um, uh, a particular genetic rearrangement that leads to a high degree of mutations and a sort of an, un, uh, an unstable uh, genome. Um, but even in tumor types, whereas monotherapy, they're not as efficacious, we have found that in combination, they can make a big difference. So the best example here um, involves non-small cell lung cancer, which, which as I'm sure you know, Danny, is the um, number one cancer killer, both in the U.S. And, and around the world. And we know that the combination of anti-PD-1 plus chemotherapy 
is a significant step forward in the treatment of those patients. So there are a number of patients who are significantly helped. However, there are also a much bigger group of patients for whom anti-PD-1, um, anti-PD-L1 treatments either don't do anything or the effect is rather modest. So the first generation of IO has shown us how profound the effects of these therapies can be, um, but at the same time have left many of us in the oncology space wanting more, wanting to know how can we extend this benefit to more patients, to more tumor types, to affect deeper responses and ideally cures. How do these first generation of immunotherapies generally work? Yeah. So, so the whole idea in um, immuno-oncology is to try to enable the immune system to attack and kill the cancer. So we all have um, in our own normal healthy immune systems, we have a cancer surveillance feature. So our immune system is always on the lookout for abnormal cells that could become cancerous in the future and um, identifying, attacking, and pruning those cells to avoid the development of cancer. This is why patients who are severely immunosuppressed for a long time can develop cancer at a young age and can develop unusual cancers because their immune system generally is not performing this um, immune surveillance function. Now, as Danny, I'm sure um, you've dived into in the past, immune, our immune system is incredibly complex, um, but can be thought of as both an innate arm of the immune system, which is um, very similar for all people, and an adaptive arm of the immune system, which is the part of your immune system that learns and changes as you grow older and are exposed to a wider variety of pathogens and other, um, other foreign insults. Um, the key player, a key player in the adaptive immune system are what are called T cells. Um, T cells are important in uh, immunology generally. They're important in um, responses to vaccinations, um, but they're also critically important in trying to um, identify and fight off cancers. Um, the first generation of IO, particularly PD-1 and PD-L1 antibodies, are really focused on activating T cells. So they're very focused on activating the adaptive immune system. Um, what we at Surface and many others have tried to do is to broaden the scope of the activation of the immune system such that you're not focused just on T cells in the adaptive side, but you're focused on other adaptive members of the immune system and the innate immune system. So macrophages and K cells, monocytes generally, really trying to recruit the entire immune system to identify and, um, and fight the cancer. And Danny, the, the cool thing about the immune system is if you can get it to identify and fight the cancer, the immune system is long lived and it has memory, right? This is why if you get chickenpox at a young age, you are unlikely to ever get chickenpox again, right? In the same way, if you can teach the immune system what the cancer looks like and how to fight that cancer, it helps not only fight the cancer itself, but prevents it from coming back without having to take any more medications. So the promise of IO is tremendous in terms of both um, shrinking and eliminating tumors and also ideally resulting in long-term remission and, um, uh, you know, and, you know, dare we say cures in patients. So if you can get there by training the innate and adaptive immune system to fight the cancer, um, the upside is tremendous in terms of patient benefit. Well, what happens in 
in the tumor microenvironment that can suppress an activated immune system once you've treated a, a patient with a, an immunotherapy. Yeah, so it's so it's a great question, and it, it it's not it's not always helpful to sort of give a tumor you know likes and dislikes and tendencies, but I think from a from a metaphoric standpoint, you can imagine that the tumor is doing its best to be invisible to the immune system. So it's trying to do everything it can and create a microenvironment around it that um, interferes with the immune system, makes the immune cells not work as well, and hopefully evades detection of the immune system. So you can imagine that most tumors can fall into one of two categories. It's a tumor type that has grown because it's um, been invisible to the immune system, but when you add an immunotherapy, the immune system now can attack and kill that tumor, but the tumor itself can develop resistance, so can turn on some pathway that can now make it invisible. And then you have other tumor types that are um, sort of invisible from the get-go, and even when you add first-generation immunotherapy, you still that still doesn't do anything. The immune system is still unable to detect that tumor. So we talk about sort of primary resistance, that's that second, ca that's that second category, or secondary resistance, which is that first category. Um, and we're still learning a huge amount about um, the different uh, mechanisms that go into either primary or secondary resistance to immune therapy. Some of it has to do with the ability of the immune cells to actually get into the tumor. So in some tumors, you can look in the tumor and not see any immune cells. So we call that an immune desert. And those, those T cells and NK cells can't get into the tumor. And if they can't get into the tumor, they can't fight the tumor. Um, in other cases, you can look in the tumor and see that T cells and NK cells and other immune system cells are able to get in, but they're exhausted, meaning they can't do their job. They are, they are inept um, uh, uh, or inert in some way. And there are mechanisms associated with being inert some of those mechanisms include these pathways that we're um, uh, that we're going after here at surface. One is the adenosine pathway that can turn T cells inert or exhausted, um, and another is this um, uh, very immune suppressive cytokine IL-27 that, when it's present, um, uh, has a uh, profound effect on the viability and the activity of T cells. What's the case for enlisting both the innate and the adaptive immune systems? Does it just give you more firepower? Does it prevent a tumor from using the, the weaponry it has to turn itself invisible to the immune system once it's the immune system has been activated against it? Yeah. So, so each, each tumor has its own set of um, cells within the immune system that are more or less prevalent, right? So in some cases, you have a more T-cell-dominated tumor. In other cases, you may have a more NK-cell-dominated tumor. And in that case, if you focus on T-cells, but there are more NK-cells around, the focus on T-cells is not going to do you much good. More broadly, and perhaps more importantly, is that even though we divide the immune system into this idea of innate and adaptive, there is a huge amount of interaction between the two. So the innate immune system is critically important to recruiting the adaptive immune system and teaching the adaptive immune system where to attack and what is abnormal and what is normal. So if you just focus on the adaptive, 
uh, part of the immune system and ignore the innate part of the immune system, you may be able to stimulate an immune response that was already there, but it's difficult to broaden that immune response because the innate immune system isn't doing the job it's supposed to be doing. So not only are you bringing sort of more cells to the quote unquote fight, right? Um, as you were saying before, but you're also because of this sort of virtuous cycle of the interplay between the innate and adaptive immune system, you can have a more efficacious and broader attack on the tumor by uh, enlisting both parts of the immune system. How well understood is the tumor microenvironment so that you can develop therapies that are hitting the right targets within it? Yeah, so so it's a, it's a clever question because I, I, the answer there, I think, is not well at all. <laughs> that we are that we're very much in the infancy of understanding um, uh, how to personalize um, different approaches to creating inflammation within the within the tumor um, to a particular person's tumor type and tumor placement. Right. So um, we are we understand in mice. Um, we understand in vitro a whole variety of different pathways that could be important in um, suppressing the local immune system. And um, uh, we have a, a strong group of scientists here at Surface who spent a lot of time working on this. And we have a large group of external advisors and collaborators who've devoted their careers to understanding this. Um, and so we can easily rattle off 10 or 15 different pathways or targets that seem to be important um, at least in our um, uh, studies in mice and in other animals and in vitro, to suppressing the immune system. But understanding in people which one is operative in which person, in which tumor type, um, that to me is, is the holy grail, right? So ideally, I would love, we would love to be able to take a sample of someone's tumor, identify from that sample which immune suppressive pathway is active, and then give the appropriate therapies to just disable that pathway. Yet we're far from being able to do that right now. So we can tell you where the pathway seems to be expressed, but that doesn't always tell you that the pathway is important. So it could be expressed, but only contributing to 10 to 15% of the sort of evasion of the immune system and then manipulating it may not matter. On the other hand, it may be expressed and responsible for 80 to 90% of um, immune system evasion. And in that case, it would be a critical node to go after. So, so the short answer is we've made a huge amount of progress in the last 10 years, but we are far from really fully understanding um, uh, how to pick the right immunotherapy target in the right patient, which, leads, which is um, due in no large part to the fact that um, we don't understand how well the, how the tumor microenvironment works to any great degree. Well, let's talk about your pipeline. You've got two wholly owned programs in the clinic. The first is SRF388, which is in development for kidney, liver, and non-small cell lung cancer. This targets IL-27. Why IL-27? Yeah, so IL-27 is a protein. It's a cytokine. So a cytokine is a protein that allows the immune system to communicate with itself, right? So in fact, this cytokine in particular, we were talking before about the communication between the innate and adaptive arm of the immune system. So IL-27, this protein, this cytokine is expressed by the members of the innate immune system, primarily macrophages, 
and has its effects on members of the adaptive immune system, primarily T cells, as well as other members of the innate immune system, primarily NK cells. So we know IL-27, when it's present, is profoundly immune suppressive. So in general, suppresses the activity of T cells and NK cells. And one example of this that I think is really interesting, Danny, is that if we look at just IL-27 levels in circulation, right? So if we drew your blood, my blood, anybody's blood, and looked for IL-27, in general, those levels are very low. But if you are a pregnant woman, those levels are very, very high. And if you look in pregnancy where it's being expressed, it's being expressed in the placenta, the connection between the maternal and the, the, the fetal blood system and the connection between their immune systems. It's felt that IL-27 is playing a really strong role, really important role there in what's called maternal fetal tolerance, meaning how do we make sure that the mother doesn't have an immune attack on the fetus, right? And that's obviously you know, critical in having a, a normal healthy childbirth. So IL-27 is really important there. It's also important in the context of uh, recovery from infection. So bacterial and parasitic infections stimulate the immune system. Your body needs a way to then turn the immune system down again when you have effectively fought that, uh, fought that infection off. And that's where IL-27, you can see high levels of IL-27 in that context. Well, it also turns out, um, and you know, we've discovered this with um, uh, our collaborators, um, but a lot of translational work here done at Surface Oncology. It turns out that IL-27 is also upregulated or also present in some tumor types, not all tumor types. And this gets back to the point um, we were discussing before around, you know, how do you know what patient to treat? But we do see upregulation of IL-27 in some tumor types, and we see evidence in the tumor microenvironment of the effect of IL-27. Um, SRF388 is purely a neutralizing antibody. So it binds IL-27 and removes it from the system, prevents it from having its immunosuppressive effect. So our hypothesis is that in tumor types that rely on IL-27, in tumors that rely on IL-27 for immune evasion, if you can sop up that, that IL-27, if you can get rid of it with SRF388, you can increase the probability that the immune system can detect, attack, and ideally eliminate uh, the tumor itself. What's known about its safety and efficacy from studies you've done to date? Yeah, so we were the first people, uh, actually we're very proud of the fact that we're the first company to bring an anti-IL-27 therapeutic into the clinic. Um, it has now been in the clinic for about two years. So we've generated the, uh, um, the first data um, uh, of an anti-IL-27 therapy in humans. Um, we can tell you first from a safety perspective um, in, the, um, in the phase one trial, the drug was very well tolerated. We did not have what are called dose limiting toxicities. So we did not, we did not identify toxicities that were so bad that we had to stop uh, giving the drug um, or escalating, giving higher doses of the drug. Um, and the, uh, the primary toxicities we saw from the drug were um, what we call low grade. Low grade meaning they, they weren't so bad that they required treatment or hospitalization. And the big one that we saw was fatigue. Um, on the efficacy side, um, what we were most pleased with is that we had a number of patients whose tumor growth stabilized, whose tumor stopped growing, for some patients upwards of six months or more. 
And we have even now seen patients whose tumors have shrunk. So, and some of those, uh, uh, some of those tumor shrinkages have met the criteria for what, me, what is called a partial response, meaning the tumor has shrunk by at least uh, 25 to 30%, and it stayed that way in some patients for six months or more. We've seen this, um, what we call monotherapy activity, so responses from just giving SRF3 added alone, um, we've seen that in lung cancer, and we've seen it in kidney cancer. We've also seen, um, we're early, but we've also seen responses in liver cancer when given with um, the anti-PD-1 antibody pembrolizumab. So we've seen evidence of activity across three different tumor types. And honestly, Danny, when you're, you know, when you're out in the clinic with a drug that has no precedent, right, against a target that no one's really looked at before, it is incredibly gratifying to see evidences, evidence of tumors shrinking and staying shrunk for quite some time. So we've been uh, incredibly excited about the progress to date. And what's the development path forward? Yeah, so, so we're very focused on kidney, liver, and lung cancer. Um, we want to see um, further um, evidence of activity in these tumor types before broadening out to more tumor types. Right now in kidney cancer, we are um, continuing to study the drug by itself in patients with um, uh, uh, what's called uh, later stage kidney cancer. So patients whose kidney cancer has already been treated um, and has progressed after multiple different lines of therapy. Um, in liver cancer, we're very focused in what's called frontline liver cancer. So these are, these are patients who've been diagnosed with liver cancer and have not had any, um, uh, any IV or oral therapy for that cancer yet. And there we're combining with an anti-PDL1 drug as well as an anti-VEGF drug. So that's a triple cocktail for patients with um, uh, what's called first-line liver cancer. And then finally, in lung cancer, where we've seen evidence of monotherapy activity as well, we are moving forward looking at the drug in late-stage lung cancer um, as a monotherapy, and also in patients who've, uh, uh, who've had one prior treatment and the cancer has continued to grow, and that's in combination with pembrolizumab. So two different approaches in lung cancer, one in combination, one with the drug by itself, one primary approach in liver cancer right now in combination, and then an approach in kidney cancer with the drug by itself. You're also in development on SRF617 for a range of indications, including gastric, prostate, and pancreatic cancers, as well as pdl one relapse cancer. This targets CD39. Why CD39? Yeah, so this is, a, um, this is another, um, uh, uh, another different pathway that seems to be important in immune suppression um, in the tumor microenvironment. We call this the, not just we, in the field, we call this the uh, adenosine pathway. Um, what we know is that um, uh, uh, ATP, which is a, a molecule, it's a metabolite that is in high concentrations in cells, and all of our cells need ATP to perform all the different intracellular activities that go on. But ATP is in very low concentrations outside of cells. Um, if cells die or are damaged, ATP gets spilled out into the extracellular space, the space outside of cells. Um, the immune system sees the ATP at the, on the outside of cells as a danger signal that activates the innate immune system, which then activates the adaptive immune system and causes a 
wound healing inflammatory response. So eventually that response needs to be stopped. And the ATP is in the extracellular space converted to adenosine. And that adenosine is immune suppressive and stops that um, inflammatory response. So you can imagine this kind of like a thermostat. The ATP being high turns the, uh, turns the immune system on. The adenosine being high turns the immune system off. So if that's what happens in you know, normal, healthy cells, you can imagine that tumors have come up with a way to use that system to suppress the immune system. So tumor cells are always growing and dying and spilling ATP out into the, micro, into the tumor microenvironment. Um, as I said, ATP stimulates the innate immune system. So tumors want to break down that ATP very quickly and turn it into adenosine. And that adenosine fog, that adenosine smog, will then suppress the immune system. So tumors quickly break down that ATP into adenosine, and that adenosine is um, an immune suppressant. And we have known, and many have known for quite some time, that if you look in the tumor microenvironment, you see very high levels of extracellular adenosine. CD39 is an enzyme, so it's a protein that exists in the tumor microenvironment and breaks down ATP into a uh, molecule called AMP, which is then converted to adenosine. So for a tumor, you're really relying on CD39 as a way to get rid of that ATP and upregulate adenosine. Um, we and others have realized then that if you can inhibit CD39, not only do you get a drop in adenosine levels, which is great because now you have less of that immunosuppressive cytokine, but at the same time, you raise levels of extracellular ATP, which is an immune stimulant. So if you think about it like driving a car, Danny, you're both coming off the brake by reducing the uh, 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 local amount of adenosine, and you're stepping on the gas by increasing the levels of ATP. So while it's not a great way to, to drive a car, it's a um, really good way to uh, stimulate the immune system. So we are not the only people who are going after CD39. There are multiple other companies in this space. We are one of the leaders. So we're one of the first three companies that um, brought into the clinic an antibody to inhibit this enzyme. Um, and we were the first to report data. We reported data um, late last year on SRF617, which is our anti-CD39 antibody. And what's known about it from studies that you've done to date? Yeah, so we presented these data at the end of last year. Um, the drug was um, very well tolerated, again, without any of those adverse events that led to needing to stop dose escalation. Um, we were very excited to see that in our translational work, so in biopsies from patients who were treated with the drug, um, uh, we were able to um, demonstrate that we were having the effect on CD39 that we expected, um, both in, in immune cells in circulation and in immune cells within the tumor microenvironment. So the drug, we believe, is doing what scientifically it's supposed to be doing. Unlike SRF388, um, SRF617 didn't have monotherapy activity meaning by itself, it didn't result in a large number of patients with tumor shrinkage or really any patient with um, a confirmed partial response. But we did begin to see activity in combination, so in combination with chemotherapy and in combination with anti-PD-1. So right now we're moving um, SRF 617 forward in phase two 
in a range of tumor types, but focusing on combination therapy. And specifically, we are focused on prostate cancer and gastric cancer in, um, in different immune combinations as a way to stimulate the immune system to fight the cancer. You've got longstanding collaborations with Novartis and GSK. These involve two other clinical therapies. How does partnering fit into your strategy? Yeah, so partnering is a critical portion, part of our um, long-term business strategy. Um, from its inception, so Surface was, was conceived as a next-gen immuno-oncology company tying, you know, Danny, to what we talked about earlier, that this was um, – uh, 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 so much excitement around the first generation immuno-oncology therapies. How do we make them better, right? We knew, though, that um, uh, this is a high-risk field, and we're going to go after a lot of targets um, with big swings, right? So um, uh, real potential, but also, also a lot of risk. Because of that, it was important to us that we get into the clinic with these novel therapies as quickly as possible and have a broad portfolio of potential products. So a broad number of different potential therapies going after different targets. So in the eight years of our existence, we have taken six different programs into the clinic, either ourselves or with collaborators. Now, no small company, um, particularly in this market environment, but broadly, no small company can really effectively prosecute six different programs in the clinic at the same time, especially ones um, in, in as complex a field as uh, immuno-oncology. So we've really relied on partnerships um, around some of these exciting programs to broaden our reach, broaden our footprint, and get these therapies to, uh, to the patients who need them. So with Novartis, we had a, um, uh, a critical relationship early, um, early in our history, um, focusing really on uh, another target called CD73, which is similar to CD39, but not identical. And Novartis is driving that program forward into the clinic. And more recently, we've, we've set up a really terrific collaboration with our partners at GSK around another target that looks at activating the innate immune system, which is called PVRIG. And GSK just earlier this year brought that program into the clinic. So broadly, you know, Danny, I'm, a, I'm a super excited about what we're doing here at Surface, as hopefully you can tell just from talking to me. But I also want to be realistic that we can't do everything all the time at the quality that, um, uh, that we insist on. So because of that, partnering has to be a key part of how we think about moving molecules forward. And when we see activity, how we think about expanding the development and getting to a commercial product. So partnering was critical at the beginning of our company. It's critical in the middle of our company. And as we move forward, even with these lead programs, it'll be critical to how we get those, those drugs to patients. Your stock, like a lot of biotechs, is down sharply. It's trading near a 52-week low at around a dollar. And the market cap is just under $65 million. What's the conversation like with investors these days? Yeah, so this has been um, uh, this has been a tough year, um, uh, certainly for the stock market in general, um, but really specifically for biotech. So we had a um, we had a sort of a little boomlet um, uh, uh, during the first year of COVID, where um, people actually rushed to biotech stocks, and um, there were a uh, a lot of investors who were not healthcare specialists investing in biotech, in part because 
of the emphasis on uh, novel treatments and novel technologies for COVID, but broadly for, um, uh, uh, for a wide range of therapies. Um, but more recently, um, there's been a real risk-off approach from investors in general and healthcare specialists in particular. So a lot of the investment has come out of the sector, driven in very large part by um, uh, all of the sort of global macro uncertainties, whether it be inflation or war in Ukraine or supply chain difficulties. Um, investors have lost an appetite for risk. And as you know, biotech in general and companies like Surface in particular um, we're taking big swings, right? So these are high-risk, high-reward um, investments. And um, when the appetite for risk dries up, um, uh, we're one of the first to uh, we're one of the first to uh, uh, to feel it. Having said that, um, I, you know our, our conversations with investors, you know, we we talk about the broader economic climate, but we're really trying to focus in our knitting, right? So how do we make sure we are progressing our programs further? furthest, making the best use of our resources and driving value to shareholders. And we think we do that by identifying the activity of these drugs and then really exploiting that activity to have um, uh, hopefully strong efficacy data that will drive uptake by patients and doctors. And that's going to that's going to at the end of the day drive the stock price. So while, you know, like any like any CEO, I, I pay a lot of attention to the stock price. I think it's a um, uh, I would never say that I that I ignore it or it doesn't matter, but it's only a component of what we're trying to do here at Surface. And fundamentally, um, if we're able to uh, get one or more of these drugs over the finish line, um, uh, we'll be helping patients, we'll be driving value for shareholders and driving value for our employees. Well, what's your runway like today and what's the strategy for funding development of your pipeline? Yeah, so um, I mentioned before some of the partnerships we've had. In fact, in the history of Surface, we've raised more money from partnerships than we've raised from the capital markets. Um, and that's put us in a um, reasonably good position. So we have, um, as of our last reporting, which was the end of June, we had a, um, uh, around $155 million in, in cash and equivalents, um, which gets us um, runway into 2024. Um, so we're in a very good place to um, continue to generate clinical data. What we have um, uh, told uh, what we've said publicly is that we will have our next data on SRF 617 toward the end of this year and data on the um, IL-27 program SRF 388 in the first half of next year. So lots of data readouts in, in, in the short term. Um, and, you know, as we, when we think about funding, like all biotechs, um, we try to be opportunistic. So there are opportunities in the capital markets, there are opportunities through partnerships, um, uh, and um, we want to make the um, best decisions for the programs as we as we move things forward. Right now, we've got a fair amount of runway, and we've got lots of data catalysts coming up. So we think it's a it's a great time to be part of the Surface team, and a great time to be um, an investor in Surface. Um, but hopefully, at the end of the day, um, uh, a great time for us to see continued strong data from our programs. Rob Ross, CEO of Surface Oncology. Rob, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, Danny, it's been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. 
We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it. Thank you.